But before we get there, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. I want you to know as you're turning there, there is absolutely no way we can get to all the things that I want to get to tonight. Do our best. But tonight is the beginning of of a conversation, beginning of a study, the beginning of understanding about some things that for some of you may be very familiar and for others may not be. John 21. Peter is on the seashore there with Jesus. And Jesus said these words. Verse 18, John 21, he said, Truly, truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And I wonder, is that... Is that possible in how the Lord works? Is it possible that He might want to take us where we don't want to go? Have you ever been led by the Lord somewhere that you did not want to go? That wasn't even in my notes. That just came to me while we were praying. If you told me what we're going to talk about tonight was something that I was going to teach on five and ten years ago, I would have said, You're nuts. Because that's just a place I don't want to go. The Lord says He's going to take us where we don't always want to go. But the thing is, when God takes us where we don't want to go, once we arrive there, we find out what a wonderful place it is. And it's where we needed to be all along. Joshua chapter 5, in verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. Talk about going somewhere you do not want to go. Verse 3, So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Ha'aralah, which means the hill of the foreskins. Is that great? We'll come back to that. Verse 4, This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 7. Their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to that day. And Father, 
I pray your blessing on this study. I pray that you'll take us into these words with understanding and clarity. And Father, that we will be open to going where we may not always want to go. That we will be open to your leading and to your spirit and to understanding the words of your scriptures. And not cling, Father, to our own traditions, but cling to your word. Now that is my desire. And I pray tonight, Spirit, that you will teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks back tonight. But first, I want to retrace Israel's steps briefly. It's a new year. Some time has passed. I want to retrace so we know that we're all on the same page. Back in Joshua 4, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. We studied that two weeks ago. And in type, we talked about how the crossing of the Jordan was like a second baptism. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 2 and 3, that the the Israelites were baptized into the Red Sea. He uses that illusion that they were baptized into the Red Sea, similar to water baptism of a believer coming to Christ. makes that connection. But now, in chapter 4 of Joshua, the Israelites cross the Jordan River, and it is a picture, an interesting, a stunning picture of a second baptism. The parallel is obvious for us today. We were in Egypt before we came to Christ. We were in bondage to sin. Like Israel, we were delivered from our Egypt by faith in God's grace. Faith in His grace, our deliverance. And like Israel, we pass to the Red Sea in baptism. But often, like the people of Israel, and I don't know if you've had this experience in your life coming to Christ, but we enter a season of wandering. As a matter of fact, it doesn't really matter how long you've been in Christ, you will hit these seasons of wandering. A crisis will happen, a challenge, a disturbance in the status quo, and you'll be back out there wandering again. And when we get into those seasons, we may begin to wonder as we wander, is there more here? We may begin to think, I'm not sure how I can do what the Lord wants me to do. I don't have the power, I don't have the ability. The Israelites knew they were God's people set free from Egypt. But they now wander for 38 years, not having received their inheritance, the promised land. Oh, they're set free, but they haven't received the promises. They haven't entered in until they make a second crossing. They make that second crossing and they enter the land. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is pictured there. And again, I remind you, it's a phrase coined by Jesus. It speaks of this crossing for us. By the way, the baptism of the Holy Spirit may be concurrent with your water baptism. It can happen at the same time. For others, it happens at different times. You can't really box the Lord in when it comes to this. It can happen differently for different people. The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Spirit distributes to each one individually just as He wills. Just as He wills. We also talked about how we can know that we've received this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Three things. I want to make sure you have these in your mind. You've thought about these or will think about these. Three things. Three ways we can know that we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Form, function, and fruit. Form, function, and fruit. Form. The form of Jesus. For the most Spirit-filled man who ever walked the face of the earth is, by, by no argument, Jesus. If anyone was spirit-filled, Jesus was. So if my life is paralleling His, if my life is looking like His, if my behavior, if my attitudes, if my actions are similar to Jesus, there's a good sign you've been spirit-filled. The form. Romans 8.29 tells us, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Looking like Jesus is the goal. 
being Christian, Christ-like, being like little Christ running around. That's what Christian means, little Christ. We are being conformed into His image. Form, the form of Jesus. Function. What is the function of the Spirit in your life? If you're Spirit-filled, you begin to flow with that function, which is the power to witness and to serve. Jesus Himself said in Acts 1.8, You will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be My witnesses. From the very beginning, Jesus makes it clear. The gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on your life is primarily for others. Though it works in you, His power is for other people. That you'll be my witnesses and you will be able to serve. 1 Corinthians 12.7 To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit so that I can have a spiritual buzz. I'm filled with the Spirit for the common good. That my life can in function serve and witness to others. Can inform, look like Jesus. And finally, fruit. Fruit. The fruit, the primary fruit of the Spirit in your life is love. John 13.35, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is the primary fruit. It's the first fruit on the list. Galatians 5.22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And we've talked about how the rest of the fruit mentioned there flows out of love. If you're loving, well then you also have joy. And you also have peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. All of these things flow out of a person who has love. And you know, you know you're Spirit-filled when you love. Especially when you love differently than you used to love before you were filled with the Spirit. When you find yourself loving people that you don't want to love... Loving people that you have a hard time loving. When you find yourself concerned with others in a way that you wouldn't have been concerned before, then you know it's a good chance that you have been filled with the Spirit. Now as Peter says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder because it's important to see and understand that the book of Joshua, while an historical account, and we're reading it as such, this truly happened, the people of Israel going into the promised land, it's a fascinating historical account. But as we study this, we need to understand it's also a practical account of how we can go about taking possession of the promises of God. It is actually a picture of the Spirit-filled life. Of someone who is following after our Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. Someone who is living for Jesus. You can see hints and traits of the Spirit-filled life throughout the book of Joshua. You may also recall in the first few chapters, chapter 2 and 3 and 4, we saw three primary aspects of the Christian life. Paul lists these in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Hope and faith and love. And in chapter 2 of the book of Joshua, we see a message of hope. Chapter 3 of the book of Joshua, a move of faith. And chapter 4 of Joshua, a memorial of love. Now, do you remember, does anyone remember what that memorial was in Joshua chapter 4? Stones. Stones stacked up. Stones placed at that place called Gilgal, but also stones placed in the river. You remember there were actually two stacks of stones. One at Gilgal to be seen by the people. The other one in the river not seen by the people. A picture of love, primarily because we are stacked and built together as a testimony to our second crossing. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God by His Spirit wants to unify us and build us up in love so that love is our testimony. 
And like the stones at Gilgal, they're visible. Our love is visible, tangible. You can see it in action. But also like the stones in the river, our love is something internal that can't be seen that God is doing inside of us. The memorial of love. Paul says in Ephesians 2.19 that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That unity, that picture of love being built together like those 12 stones in the river, like the 12 stones at Gilgal. Now I personally believe, by the way, that the place of Israel's crossing, when they crossed the Jordan, the water stopped and they, and they traveled across, I believe that was the exact place of Jesus' baptism. And there are a couple of reasons for that. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I didn't tell you why I thought this. I'm going to tell you this right now. Two clues that indicate the possibility that Jesus' baptism happened in the precise location of Joshua's crossing with the children of Israel. Clue number one, the place of John's choosing. The place of John's choosing. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 28, it tells us these things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now you understand that the Jordan River runs 156 miles from northern Israel spilling into the Sea of Galilee called also Lake Kinnereth. It flows into the lake, that great sea. It also flows out and continues all the way down through Israel to the Dead Sea. Where it pours into the Dead Sea and it's called the Dead Sea because there's no outlet. Everything pours into it and it just dies there. The Sea of Galilee is the only freshwater lake in all of Israel, making it incredibly important as a water supply for the people. But that river Jordan that flows through the heart of Israel, that river is 156 miles long, and John chose a specific place to baptize. He could have baptized anywhere, but he baptized at Bethany. Why is that important? Because Bethany in the original Hebrew language is Bethabara. Bethabara means the place of the passage. The place of the passage. Israel has a long memory. One of the things that you notice when you visit the land itself is it has a long memory. You have a sense of the ancient there that is unlike anywhere else in the world. And the people of Israel have a long memory. And the names, there are names of places throughout the nation of Israel, the country of Israel today, names that have been there since they were named thousands of years ago. Beth-Abara, the place of passage. But that's just one clue, the place of John's choosing. He chose to baptize there at Beth-Abara, the place of the passage, but also the words of John's using. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. John is talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're there on the, on the side of the river, and they're, of course, giving him a hard time. And John says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. What stones? I think he's talking about the stones in the water. The twelve stones that were stacked up at the place of the crossing, Bethabara. From these stones, he is able to raise up children to Abraham. 
Those 12 monument stones of Joshua's crossing, again, that location would still have been well known to the Jewish people. Israel's memory is very long. Now, I grew up in Southern California. And the memory of Southern California is very short. You go to the Mission of San Juan Capistrano. You know, and it's been there a couple hundred years. Woo, ancient, you know. And then I moved later in life out to Virginia, where I got to live for three years. A wonderful place to be, and it felt old. In places there, six, seven hundred years old. Buildings there that, that were older than the entire state of California, at least as far as it being settled. And I love living there, but then you go to Israel, and it's a place that is 4,000 plus years old. That there are diggings, that there are archaeological finds that date back to the time of Abraham. And that, my friends, is old. The country has a long memory. Joshua, as a book, is a great history, but it's also a present reality of our faith. And so as Joshua would stand there and say, Hey, these stones, by these stones God can, can raise up children for Abraham. And Jesus would later say, By the rock of your faith, Peter, this solid rock, you're a little rock, Peter, but on the rock of faith, I'm going to build up my church. The place of Israel, that, that long-standing history, and it's in that place that the people cross the Jordan. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And now as we look at it tonight, they have crossed the Jordan and they're there in Gilgal. And let's take a look at this. Verse 1. Verse 1 tells us, It came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. 38 years prior, he had dried up the waters of the Red Sea and the people crossed. Well, word reached all the way to the city of Jericho and the region of Canaan, and they were already afraid because of that. Now these people came, and they're on the banks of the Jordan, and it happens again. And verily, verily, the people of Canaan were freaking out. And this is a fulfillment of an earlier prophecy, Exodus 23:27. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw confusion and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. The Red Sea was an act of salvation for Israel. It also, it also was a warning for Canaan, leaving them shaking in their sandals. It was in the crossing of the Jordan, another warning to the people of Canaan. Here come the people of God. Now, for Joshua, as Israel's commander-in-chief, it's the perfect time to strike. We're told in verse 1, everyone's afraid. The Canaanites are shaking. They're afraid. They're, they're scared to death. And here comes this massive people. And if you were a commander, if I was a commander, strike while the iron's hot. But God has one more thing for Joshua to do first. An odd request. Something he needs to take care of. Verse 2. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. Make sharp knives. Don't you mean sharpen our swords? Don't you mean get out the shields and the spears and get ready to fight? Are you kidding? Lord, what you're asking us to do, and we understand the covenant and all that is important, but, but what you're asking us to do is to come into the territory of our enemy and make ourselves vulnerable. Why not tell us to do this on the other side of the Jordan? Why now, after we've crossed, we're in the, the danger zone? And now you want us laid up for two or three days, or a week in some cases? <laughs> because all the men, all the fighting men are now circumcised? It seems kind of crazy. 
You may recall back in Genesis 34 there's a story similar to this of a whole group of men being circumcised and being laid out for a time. Remember in the city of Shechem, a couple of the sons of of, uh, Jacob, they go to Shechem who was a prince and all the people of Shechem, so Shechem was the man and Shechem was the city, it's both, and they say, look, uh, and, and the Shechem, the man, raped their sister Dinah, and so they go and say, look, you can marry our sister. In fact, all our daughters and, and, and such can marry with, with your men and everything, but you guys have to be circumcised like we are. So the men of Shechem said, hey, okay, that sounds good to us. They all get circumcised, and while they are laid up healing, Simeon and Levi go in, and they slaughter every man in the entire town. That's just a picture of how vulnerable these guys would be. And I don't know, but I imagine some of the guys in Israel must have been going, we're going to be just like Shechem. We're going to be totally vulnerable here. This doesn't make sense, Lord. Why are you doing this? Verse 3 going on, Joshua made for himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Ha'aralah, the hill of the foreskins. Now think about this. We're talking about some five to 600,000 men. The hill of the foreskins. The Bible tells it like it is. <laughs> it does not mince words. It sounds like something you'd see on Fear Factor. Verse 4. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. Every one of them. Except two. Except for two. Joshua and Caleb. Right. But verse 5 says, For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Verse 6 tells us, For the sons of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war, who came out of Egypt perished because, because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. How typical that is of us. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and with honey. God is the covenant maker. Man is the covenant breaker. And I shared on Sunday that I had been called a lawbreaker recently because this church worships on Sunday instead of on Saturday, the Sabbath. And... uh, Aside from the fact that that's, that that's unbiblical and it's not, it's not an issue in Christ, um, we're all lawbreakers, gang. Every one of us. That's why we need grace. We will not be saved outside of the grace of God. And so we have a picture of this, the people of Israel, and you can underline this in your Bibles, I have it highlighted, they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. And when I don't listen to the voice of the Lord, I break covenant with Him. When I don't listen to the voice of the Lord, I begin to pay attention to myself and to the things that I'm concerned about as opposed to what He is concerned about. Hmm. It doesn't matter if there is one law or many laws. The single most important covenant of God with the offspring of Abraham was circumcision and they couldn't keep that. They didn't even do that. As they walked and wandered in the desert, they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Verse 7, their children, 
whom he had raised up in their place Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way verse 8 now when they had finished circumcising all the nation they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed again they're in enemy territory now they're in pain they're unable to fight but in verse 9 the reason is given and it's incredibly significant the Lord said to Joshua today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you So the name of that place is called Gilgal to that day. Gilgal means rolling. Rolling. To roll away the reproach of Egypt, you've got to be circumcised before you fight. Now, they had crossed through the Red Sea, baptism number one. They had crossed the Jordan River, baptism number two, picture of the baptism of the Spirit. And now, now he's saying they need to be circumcised. An additional thing needs to happen. Now, Suddenly I began wondering, well, has our comparison to the spiritual life begun to break down here a little bit? Because it feels like we're going back in another direction, that they need to be circumcised. And and, and furthermore, what's the reproach here that's even being talked about? What's this reproach of Egypt? A couple of possibilities. The reproach of Egypt, Kyle and Delich, the commentators, they say that it's the reproach that Egypt or the Egyptians put on the children of Israel. It was mocking the children of Israel both as they were in Egypt because they would circumcise and that to the Egyptians aside from their priests the Egyptian people that's just weird that's something bizarre that's something the magic men did but it's not something the normal people did and so they would have mocked Israel right there but also they mocked them there was reproach that fell on Israel because they were wandering in the desert 38 years the Egyptians would say see (laughs) I knew that was going to happen they went out there following their God and where are they? They're wandering in the wilderness. Word would get around. They knew what was going on. And so there was a reproach and God says, but it's over. Today I am rolling back that reproach. Today you will be justified. Today they will see and know that I am God and you are my people. The Egyptian mocking of Israel. But the reproach of Egypt could also simply be the shame of a broken covenant. The shame of not trusting in the Lord, of not believing in the Lord. The shame, the reproach of Egypt. But now the Lord says, I'm rolling it back. I'm shutting down the shame. I'm keeping my covenant promise to Abraham and Israel. Before you receive the promised land, you're going to re-enter this covenant promise. And you're going to do so without shame. And that's what Paul tells us. When we come to Jesus, we are not ashamed. We don't stay in shame. And I encourage you all, if there is shame in your life, if you're feeling shame, that is not of the Lord. That is not a tool that He uses to shame you. He wants to re-enter this covenant with them. And He tells them, and this is important, Joshua, the sign of this covenant, the sign of my re-entering this, of you re-entering it with me, because God never broke His side, the sign is circumcision. Again, after crossing the Jordan, not before, but after, the Lord rolls the people now back to this covenant sign of circumcision. Now, nine verses, and that's as far as we're going to go in Joshua tonight. Because this story and its application is so significant that I want to talk about something that that I believe is connected here for us. For once again, as the story unfolds, we find ourselves in an interesting territory. Not enemy territory, but the territory of the Spirit-filled life. Now, I want that. 
I don't want the cliched version of the Spirit-filled life. I don't want someone else's idea of what it means to be Spirit-filled. Indeed, as Les and I have talked over the last three years about the Bridge Christian Fellowship, one of the things that, that he has said, and it's really stuck with me, and I believe the Lord has spoken this to us, is that the bridge is not to import. We're not to bring in other ideas and things from other churches. We're simply just to do it by the book straight from the beginning to follow what God is teaching and not to let other influences focus the direction let it just be what God wants it to be period with no strings attached we are not to import things and that's Les's words and I like that to try and keep it just by the book I want that I want to live in the flow of the Spirit of Christ because he's taught me how to live in that flow I want to hear the voice of God because He is speaking to me. I want to know His will for my life and I want to walk in that will. Not because someone else told me what they think His will is, but because He has told me, He has shown me, He has led me. I want that kind of a Spirit-filled life. And you might say, well, what in the world does circumcision have to do with the Spirit-filled life? Where's the connection? Roll back for a moment with me to Genesis 17, where the covenant was given. Genesis 17, verse 9, God said to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Note that circumcision is not the covenant. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. What was the covenant? That God was giving Israel the land. That God was going to bless Abraham and his seed. And it is a graphic picture, but it is the perfect picture. The perfect place for a sign would be the foreskin, especially when you're talking about the seed of Abraham. There is wisdom in this gang. And we, it's funny, today can be embarrassed by it or joke about it, the whole idea of circumcision, because it's not understood. And I think the Egyptian people would have joked about it and brought reproach on Israel for it because it was misunderstood. Indeed, I think Israel kind of left it behind for a while because it was misunderstood. They didn't understand what God was doing with this whole sign of circumcision. But on the most obvious level, the sign of this covenant is that circumcision was a cutting away of the flesh. God is always interested in saying, I want to cut away the flesh. Cutting away the flesh. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Spiritually speaking, circumcision pictured that cutting away of the flesh. It indicates sensitivity to the covenant of God. Circumcision indicates purity for the covenant of God. Circumcision indicates privacy in the covenant of God. For consider this, a circumcised man would always know that he was circumcised. He would be reminded of it every day. Now everybody else wouldn't necessarily, but he would. And every circumcised male would be aware of it. There is a privacy involved in this covenant as well. Purity, sensitivity, privacy, and circumcision also indicates the permanence of the covenant. It's not something that you know you can take back. Once it's done, it's done. God is saying, I am making a permanent covenant with you. 
And as I've already said, this act was mocked and misunderstood. In fact, it's still misunderstood today. It's interesting how, how medicine continues to go back and forth about the value of circumcision. You know, that there are certain seasons where, the, you know, the medical doctors will say, oh yeah, it's very important, it's healthy, it's healthier for people. And now again, they're coming back around and saying, oh, it's not necessarily healthier, maybe it's not a good thing. And we don't even get it today. But the Lord chose this sign as a seal of his covenant, his promise that through Abraham's seed the world would be blessed. Again, it's graphic, but it's the perfect place for such a sign. God said, I want you to be marked. And with this marking, this sign, it's going to be a seal to you. Now, Romans chapter 4, verse 11 tells us Abraham received the sign of circumcision. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, Paul says, while uncircumcised. What? This sign, this seal of covenant, was a sign and a seal of something that had nothing to do with the circumcision itself. That is the faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. He already had a faith relationship with God, and so God said, now I want you to be circumcised as a symbol, a sign of that faith you already have in me. Again, Paul calls this circumcision a sign and a seal. A sign and a seal. Are you getting the picture of those two words? A sign and a seal. So with that in mind, what are the sign and the seal of the Christian today? Turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. Looking at and considering this question, what are the sign and the seal of the Christian today? Colossians 2.11, Paul says the following. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Then he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Paul confirms this truth, that Christians have been circumcised in Christ, not physically, but spiritually. Now, even the early church struggled with circumcision. They had to have a big debate about it in, in the book of Acts. It tells a story. They, they had to come together and talk about, okay, well, should non-Jewish people who come to faith in Christ, shouldn't they get circumcised too? And they realized exactly what Paul's writing. It's not a physical issue. It's a spiritual one. It's the removal of the flesh. There is a sign. There is a seal involved here. Christians are circumcised in Christ, not physically, but spiritually. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 tells us the following. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. Now watch this. Who also sealed us, who sealed us, and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge or as a sign. What is the sign and the seal of the Christian today? It's the Holy Spirit. The sign and seal. 
He is our sign. He is our seal. Now listen closely because the Bible goes on to tell us something interesting in terms of a correlation between circumcision and not simply the Holy Spirit, but a more specific sign of the seal of the Holy Spirit that is unfortunately both misused and misunderstood today as much as circumcision was back then. Proverbs 18.21 says the following interesting phrase life is in the power of the tongue life is in the power of the tongue that's an odd phrase I would have thought differently I would have thought that the Lord chose circumcision because life originates in the reproductive organs I mean that's that's the picture where life comes from right the reproductive organs and so circumcision makes sense Because what's happening there, the sign is in the place of life and the production of life. And yet, the Proverbs writer says life is in the power of the tongue. And spiritually, he's right. Life is connected to the tongue. Paul says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Life in the tongue. That I confess, that I speak the words of faith. And there is life that comes through the tongue as well. But there's more to it. A greater connection. For the seal of circumcision, a covenant sign is curiously similar to a spiritual sign of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And I'm talking of tongues. Prayer languages. Speaking in tongues. Now this is a whole area that once you step into it can be debated, can be divisive, can be misunderstood. Let's just see what the Word has to say about this for a few minutes. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul had to write a whole section of a letter to explain to the church in Corinth what they did not understand about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is clearly an infant church, an immature church, but a highly gifted church. Just by Paul's conversation in in the letter to Corinth, his first letter, he's talking about all kinds of gifts that are active and going on in that church and and being wildly misused. It's not just the church today that had trouble understanding the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It was the church in the very first century. And so Paul writes to address this and to define things and to clarify things. Listen to his words and watch closely what he says. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 14. The first two words, probably the most important I'm going to say tonight, pursue love. Pursue love. And I remind you that 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are the two chapters where he really delves into the gifts of the Spirit. But right in the middle of them, he inserts the greatest chapter in the Bible on love, because love is the primary issue. And whether you have a certain gift or don't have another gift is beside the point, do you have love? If you have love, and the way Jesus loves, then you've got the most important gift the Spirit can give, the most powerful gift of all is love pursue love yet yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy now it says for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God for no one understands that in his spirit he speaks mysteries now stop right there this is a different kind of speaking in tongues than happened in Acts chapter 2 Because in Acts chapter 2, as Peter and the apostles began speaking in tongues, 
as we're told they did the tongues were understood in the, as languages of all those who were assembled there people from all different areas were talking about different languages because as Peter was speaking in tongues the people standing around were going oh I understand him and that guy understands him but I didn't even understand that guy five minutes ago how do we both understand him because he was speaking languages glossolalia in the Greek specific languages and one aspect of speaking in tongues used powerfully in the first century was this idea of speaking in other languages being gifted with another language and it helped the rapid spread of the gospel now an unfortunate interpretation of this passage and others relating to speaking in tongues was that it was necessary in the first century but it's not necessary today so it passed away and that's not true because again listen to what Paul says in verse 2 one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God for no one understands and in his spirit he speaks mysteries this is not a human language understood by some other human Paul is talking about a different thing here than that going on in verse 3 but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation verse 4 one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself but one who prophesies edifies the church Listen, tongues, as Paul defines it here, is the least of the spiritual gifts because it's self-centered. Actually, to be quite honest, it's God-centered. But it's about the self and the Father alone. He says very clearly, if you speak in a tongue, you're edifying yourself. Not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong, it's not a bad thing, but you're edifying yourself. You're not edifying the church. Every one of the rest of the gifts are for the common good and edification of the body. Speaking in tongues is for the edification of the self, which makes it the least of all the gifts. Not the most important, as it has been made to be in our Christian communities sometimes today. It's still an important gift, but it's not the most important. I would say it's the least important. Verse 5 going on, Paul says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying I want you to speak in tongues also Paul says but more so to prophesy because it builds other people up but notice this Paul does not prohibit tongues he encourages this gift in the right context and if they don't do it at all he just says there's a right way and there's a wrong way to go about this there's a right place and a wrong place there's that which is appropriate with tongues and that which is not appropriate with tongues and you might be thinking okay that's nice but I still don't see any specific correlation between circumcision and speaking in tongues where do you draw that parallel notice the strikingly similar terminology in these following verses Romans 2.28 I'll just read these to you for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Romans 4.11 Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In him you also after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who has given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now, turn in your Bibles quickly. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 14 and turn over to the book of Acts. And go to the second chapter. And you can follow this through. In fact, I encourage you to go back and possibly do this even on your own time. Go back through the book of Acts and track and follow through the process by which speaking in tongues is shown. The the examples, what we actually see going on. And you'll find it to be interesting. Several chapters here in Acts chapter 2 around verse 4. It tells us they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving giving them utterance. I already mentioned this. The speaking in other tongues here was very specifically languages, and we know that because people understood what was being said. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 says, the tongues he's talking about there are not understood by men, but only by God. Two different kinds of speaking in tongues. But in this case, Peter and the apostles were speaking these intelligible languages of all the different people represented there. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. I'm just going to fly through this, but you can jot down where it is and go back and read it a little more slowly. Again, on your own time. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. It tells us now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Oops, you mean that that can be a separate event? Because Peter said in Acts chapter 2 that that repent and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But these guys were baptized and they hadn't had the Holy Spirit fall upon them. Well, doesn't mean they weren't filled with the Spirit, but it does mean they hadn't received that power of the Spirit. And so it tells us, verse 17, Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now I want to let you know, we don't know here if they spoke in tongues, but we know something was happening. Why? Read on. When Simon, Simon who's Simon the magician, saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon saw something. There was a power that was endued to these people after the hands of the apostles were laid on them. Something was happening that caught the attention of Simon and he went, wow, I want to buy some of that. I want to purchase some of that power. Peter, of course, turns around and says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven to you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. We don't know they spoke in tongues, but we know something attracted Simon. Something got his attention. Something tangible, visible happened when they received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verse 17. It tells us that Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. Okay, here's another example. Now Paul receives the Holy Spirit before he's baptized. 
We've got three different things that have just happened in this book. We have people getting baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. We have people getting baptized and not receiving the Holy Spirit until later. And now we have Paul receiving the Holy Spirit and then getting baptized. Don't box God in. He's going to do it His way. It doesn't you know, discount baptism any more than it discounts the Holy Spirit. It's all part of God's plan. But the, the strategy or the, or the way, the design may be different with different people. If you go on reading about Saul here, we realize that he's filled with the Spirit. Again, we don't, spoke, we don't know if he spoke in tongues at the time. But later, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, he says, I speak in tongues more than you all. So we know Paul had the ability to speak in tongues as the Spirit was upon him. Now look at Acts chapter 10, verse 44. A couple more of these. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Says, While Peter was still speaking these words, Peter is talking to Cornelius and Cornelius' family, and he's in the middle of preaching. And it says, While he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Well, how do we know they had the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out on them? Verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And Peter answered and said, Surely no one can refuse the water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. And I've had people use that verse and say, See, you don't have to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. And I say, Great, I agree. You don't have to be, obviously. But does that mean you shouldn't be? People will use this as proof texting against being water baptized because they say, no, I was baptized by the Holy Spirit. Great. Terrific. But Peter turns around and says, do we refuse these people water for baptism who have already been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Both are important. Both matter. Why wouldn't you want to do them both? See, I think that's the thing that we miss with the Lord sometimes. If He asks us to do something, no matter what it is, why wouldn't we want to do it? Whether it's the baptism of the Spirit, or water baptism, or repentance, or confession, or prayer, or anything else the Lord calls us to. Why wouldn't we want to do it? Skip on over to Acts chapter 19, the last one in the book of Acts. Acts 19 and verse 6. It tells us that Paul had laid his hands upon them, these were a group of people, a little background group of people who had been baptized into John's baptism of repentance, but never baptized into Jesus, and they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They weren't sure about that, no one had taught them about that. And so it tells us that they were, in verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And what's interesting here is we have yet another different example. Now we have these people who are baptized first, but then Paul had to lay his hands on them for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Almost every single one of these examples are idiosyncratic. They're unique. They're different. They all have the same components, but they're all slightly different. And I think the reason God did this in writing it down and showing us these particular examples in Acts is to say, don't assume it's going to be the same for every single person. Water baptism, important. Do it. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is available. Do it. But don't assume it's going to be the same just because it happens for this person this way that it's going to happen for this person this way. It happened differently for all of these people in the book of Acts. 
Now, we cannot be dogmatic. You can go back to 1 Corinthians 14. We cannot be dogmatic about this issue. And I will stand firm on this in my own understanding. Um, we cannot say the spirit-filled person must speak in tongues. However, we can say clearly, biblically, that it is a sign of the seal of the Holy Spirit. It is a sign of the seal of the Spirit. John 4.23 Jesus said, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. True worshipers are going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We've got the truth. We also need the Spirit. Spirit and truth. Such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must, must worship in Spirit. And that doesn't mean having the right attitude. Okay, wait, I want to get in the right spirit for worship this morning. Okay, I'm there. It's not what He's talking about. To worship in Spirit. Literally to worship in the Spirit. Jesus isn't referring to an attitude here. He's indicating a spiritual truth. He's talking about worshiping in the Holy Spirit. Philippians 3.3 tells us we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And we see the example of John in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 saying that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was worshiping in Spirit and truth. Now, 1 Corinthians 14, back there again. Look at verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they don't produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? If the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who's going to prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Now he's talking about in the assembly of the fellowship, in the church gathered together to worship, he's saying it doesn't make sense for you to be babbling off in tongues over here and person over here doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. And he goes on. He says in verse 10, There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, as clearly the church in Corinth was. He says, Seek to abound for the edification of the church. This is key. In the gifting of any fellowship, the edification of the church is first and foremost, is primary. Therefore, Paul says, let one who speaks in a tongue, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, now listen to this, this is important, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What does he mean? Paul means when I, when I speak in a prayer language, when I'm speaking in tongues, mentally, I don't even know what I'm saying. I don't know. But my spirit's praying. Paul says something's going on here that I don't even understand. And yet my spirit does. Interesting. 
Read on. What is the outcome then? Verse 15. I will pray with the Spirit. And I will pray with the mind also. In other words, I'm going to pray in the Spirit not understanding what I'm praying, but I'm also going to pray with my mind completely understanding what I'm saying. He says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted, or literally the unlearned, how will they say amen at your giving of thanks? Since they do not know what you're saying. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Again, speaking in tongues, prayer languages, it edifies the person doing it. It doesn't edify anybody else because nobody else knows what's going on or what's being said. Now he goes on. Verse 18. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now I have written in the, in the margin of my Bible here between verses 18 and 19 something that helps me understand what's going on here. There's a public and a private use of things. In private, Paul's saying, I speak in tongues more than any of you. I do it constantly. In public, he's saying, I would rather speak five words that you understand. I'd rather be clear. I'd rather teach. I'd rather prophesy. I'd rather exhort. I'd rather use language that is understood by the whole body so the whole body is built up and edified together. Why would someone pray, why would someone pray in the Spirit privately then? If, as Paul says, you don't even know what you're saying. Why would you do that? Why a prayer language? Because, and the Bible is clear about this, a lot of the time we don't even know what to pray. We have no idea. How many times have you bowed your head before the Father, stressed about something, concerned about something, striving over something, and you just went, Ah! I don't know what to say, Lord. I don't, know, I don't even know where to begin. I don't know how to start into this conversation with you. I, I just, ah, I don't have words. And the Bible tells us, Romans 8.26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Prayer language. Groanings too deep for words. I don't know what to pray, I don't know how to pray, but Paul says when I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Even though my mind's unfruitful. Look at verse 20. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Now watch this. This is where I want you to land tonight. And again, there's so much more we could talk about in this, but this is key. In the law, he says, it is written, By men of strange tongues, and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, Paul says, Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? Wait a minute, Paul. Didn't he just contradict himself? I mean, if you just read this and you kind of skim the surface, verse 22, he says, tongues are a sign for unbelievers. But in verse 23, he says, if an unbeliever comes in and you're speaking in tongues, they're going to think you're nuts. So what's the deal? 
How do we work this out? How do we get this understood? Have you ever been to a church? (laughs) We're in the public assembly. People are speaking in tongues and other people are sitting there going, this is just strange. It's just a little out there. Have you ever been in a place where you being a believer felt uncomfortable because someone was standing up and speaking in tongues and other people were interpreting, but you just knew it couldn't be right? What that guy's saying over there, and what that guy's saying, he's saying from over there are two different things. He's saying something, he's repeating it over and over and over and over and over. And this guy is doing a whole litany of things and using a completely different word. Have you ever been there? Now maybe some of you haven't. But some have, where you sit there and you're uncomfortable because you know what's going on. It just, just can't be right. And so there's this attitude, and especially in more Pentecostal churches, this attitude of we got to just kind of weed through the messiness to get to the nugget of truth that may come down the line. And I'm sorry, but in my opinion, that's strange fire. Which we talked about in an earlier study. I don't believe that God, the Lord throws out all kinds of confusion and tosses in a nugget of truth and expects, expects us to sift through it and find that nugget. I just don't think that's right. Let me read to you what Chuck Smith said about this in his book Charisma versus Charismania. He wrote, and, and he, he was raised in a Pentecostal background, and listen to this, he says, Unquestionably, Paul is seeking to restrict the use of the gift of tongues in the assembled church. There has developed what I feel to be a false concept of, quote, messages in tongues. As though God has a special message for the church to be given through tongues and interpretation. But he says this, There is not one single instance in the New Testament that we can point to as an example of where God spoke to anyone through tongues and interpretations or just through tongues themselves. Now, if you disagree with that, I challenge you to go looking because he's right. There's not a single example where God spoke through someone who was speaking in tongues to get a message to his people. God doesn't need to. When God wants to speak to us, he speaks loud and clear. And he will tell us, what, and that's called prophecy, by the way. And I think possibly, and we were just talking about this this morning, Les and I, I think possibly what happens a lot of times is someone will be speaking in tongues in an assembled church where, where that's acceptable and they do that, and someone else will stand up to give an interpretation, and the interpretation is not of the tongues, it's a prophecy. It's completely unrelated. Because, and listen, if the interpretation is an interpretation of tongues, guess what it's going to be? It's going to be Godward. It's going to be a praise to the Lord. It's going to be focused on the Lord. It won't be manward. Speaking in tongues is a Godward act, not a manward act. And the Bible's clear about that as well. We have kind of an unspoken agreement here at the bridge, and it's just unspoken because it's the way we've done things for three years here. It doesn't mean we have to do it that way, just because we have, but the agreement is this. You show up, you bring your friends, and the guarantee is they're going to hear biblical, grounded messages. They will be able to engage in worship and in song, or at least they'll be able to watch other people naturally engage in worship to the Father. Someone comes into the bridge who may not understand or may not be a Christian or is new to the whole thing and they're going to hear a proclamation of the gospel every week, if not in the sermon, and they likely will, but they're going to hear it in communion every single week, the message of Jesus and the crucifixion. They will experience love and fellowship among Christians and they will not be confused in the assembled worship by outward expressions of tongues among us. Because as Paul said, tongues are a sign 
for unbelievers. Wait a minute. That sounds contradictory. Let me show you something. When Paul says tongues are a sign for unbelievers, we need to understand that verse 22 is talking about a specific group of people. A group of people who are in Christ, but do not yet understand or believe in speaking in tongues. They're believers in Christ, but they're unbelievers in speaking in tongues. Where in the world do you get that? Two places. Both are right here in context. Verse 21 tells us, Paul quotes, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a quotation of Isaiah 28, verse 11. So to understand the context and who Paul's talking about and what he's indicating here, you go back to Isaiah 28, verse 11, and you see what's going on. And in Isaiah 28, 11, God is talking to His people. He's not talking to or about outsiders who don't understand Israel or their ways. He's talking to Israel. And what He's saying to them is, Israel, you're not listening to the prophets that I'm sending to you. You are not listening to my prophets, so I'm going to allow the Assyrians... And I'm going to allow the Babylonians who speak bizarre tongues that you don't understand, I'm going to allow them to come in and verify what the prophets are already telling you. In other words, Israelites, my people, I'm going to bring in some people who are going to speak. And when they start to babble, and you start to hear the Babylonians, and you start to hear the Assyrians, you're going to realize that everything I said through my prophets was exactly true. You're going to believe that. You will believe my word then. Isaiah, among other prophets, was calling for repentance. But he was saying to those who are already part of the congregation that when they hear these tongues, they're going to start believing. And that's the context of Paul's statement. In any given church fellowship, there are always those who either have yet to experience or simply don't accept the active power of the Holy Spirit. And God says, but when that person begins to hear in tongues or to speak in tongues, (laughs) they're going to believe. It's a sign for the unbeliever. It's a sign for the unlearned. And that's the other part of this context, verse 16. How will the one who fills the place of the ungifted or the unlearned say the amen? The unbeliever here is not the non-Christian. It's the Christian who doesn't get tongues. It's the Christian who doesn't understand the functioning of the Holy Spirit, the manifest gifts. And so he says tongues are a sign for the unbeliever. It's a sign for the person who's in Christ but hasn't gotten that. He doesn't realize that yet. But when they begin to, they will believe. They will believe. Tongues are a sign for people in that position, the ungifted or the unlearned believers who don't believe, people just like me. I said a little while ago, and I want to clarify this for Barbara's sake, because you asked me this question. I said that I was raised in a church that was cessationist. Some people thought I said sensationalist. Totally different. Okay, to be sensational would be to, to you know, that would probably be directed toward charismatic. That was not how I was raised. I was not raised in the charismatic fellowship, far from it. Cessationist is from the word cease. Because the belief of the church that I grew up in was that tongues ceased, ended with the last of the apostles. When Paul died, the manifest gifts of the Holy Spirit died as well. The power gifts, healings, miracles, speaking in tongues, these things no longer existed after Paul. And that's what I grew up on. I was the one who grew up in that place, believing in Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus 
But I was an unbeliever in the gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you are tonight. I don't know where you're all coming from in this. And I was praying all day long about this because I knew I was going to share this and it's the kind of thing that, that some people can be offended by if we don't understand it. It's taken me years and even now I feel like a toddler. Personally, privately, God has been at work in my life in ways I'm not going to go into right now. He's taken me to my own personal Gilgal, to my own personal circumcision, and gang, it happened after the Red Sea, after the Jordan River. Then we reached this place called Gilgal. And for many of us as believers, God has to work that road. He's got to take us down a road where He teaches us some things, where we can understand, grounded in truth, what the truth is. Now for some of you, you received the power gifts of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You received right when you believed, right when you were baptized, boom, it all happened at once and you were good to go. The rest of us were not that blessed. <laughs> the rest of us had to figure this sort through it and be, and be led by the Lord to Gilgal, where as adults we had to receive this circumcision, which I can tell you, not from personal experience, but I've heard as an adult it's no fun at all. I mean, I think circumcision for a little baby is probably the best way to go. And many people, as babies, as infants in Christ, are circumcised right there, receive the gift of the Spirit there, and boom, wonderful, and never have to think twice about it. But there are many people who come to Christ as adults and who find that circumcision as adults. And we need to work it out. Sometimes it's painful. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. And it may lay us up for a few days. And it may slow us down. But I want to encourage you that the seal of the Holy Spirit is something that is not only to be accepted as true, but to be experienced as real. And it's taken to this point in my life for me to be able to say that. The Holy Spirit is to be experienced as real in your life. God wants an active relationship. Let me tell you one thing that happened today. Les, did you talk to Brian Young today at all? It's incredible. We had a long conversation this morning, Wes and I, we were praying about this very thing, and I was sharing with him a little bit about what the lesson was uh, for tonight. And I got an email this afternoon from Brian Young, who's one of our missionaries. And Brian said he was praying for me this morning, which is always nice. I covet that. I love hearing that. I will selfishly say, pray for me a lot. I'll take all the prayer I can get. But he was praying for me, and he said he had a message that he felt the Father was giving him for me. And printed out was that message and without going into what the message was specifically it was absolutely confirming every single thing I had studied everything we talked about this morning and Brian had no idea now that is God speaking actively and experientially today he is real and life in the spirit is not meant to be lived in a pew it's meant to be lived day by day moment by moment walking in the spirit experiencing God having a relationship with the Father and somewhere there, there's, a, there's a place in between the charismatic movement that, that can tend to be out there and then the fundamentalist movement that can be dead right <laughs> There's that place in between where we find the absolute solid truth of the Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit hand in hand leading us forward the way God wants to. Again, regardless of our traditions. So you might say, how do I get that ball rolling? How do I move into that place? 
you need something sharp. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so the question is, are you willing? Are you willing to allow your personal pride and even your intellect and even intelligible speech to be cut by the word? To be circumcised by the word of God? Because I'm telling you, and even now, if you're sitting here and you're not sure about this stuff and what Rick's saying here, then I encourage you to go home and read through Acts. And I encourage you then to go over to 1 Corinthians 14 and you read it word for word, follow it through, listen to Paul's reasoning, look at his explanation, and let the word sharpen you. And let the word cut and literally cut away the flesh. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 14 will end. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. Why? Because prophecy is intelligible speech. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. We have never, in three years of the bridge being here, had a time in the assembled worship where people stood up and spoke in tongues and someone else interpreted. But I'll tell you what, we have had over and over and over we've had people saying, wow, I just think the Spirit's here. What did Paul just say? He says that this one will declare that God is certainly among you. Why? Because prophecy is happening. Because the Word is being clearly spoken. He says in verse 26, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. But he says, Let all things be done for edification. And that's the primary concern of Paul. That the body be built up and edified together. And that you personally be edified. But man, when you assemble as a body, let the edification be for everyone. And then he goes on the rest of the chapter and he gives some specific um, guidelines for this. Again, if you struggle with this at all, I encourage you to sharpen your study with the two-edged sword of the Word. And finally, I encourage you to pray. Because something needed to happen to Israel. After the Jordan was crossed, before they took possession of the promise, they needed to be circumcised. The sons of Israel had to have a sign. And Jesus said... In Mark 16, 17, those who believe will speak with new tongues. Father, we covered a lot of ground tonight and and opened up and looked at some things and, Father, things that I'm in process with myself. But I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for clarifying in the areas that we are unclear and for being specific in the areas that we have questions. And, Father, I pray that as we consider these things again we will return to the first two words of Paul's statement in in chapter 14 that we would pursue love it would be first and foremost about loving each other and pursuing the love that you have for us and Father we thank you for the blessing of your word we thank you for your spirit that you have chosen to give to us and we ask that you would lead us by your spirit now in Jesus name Amen